find that technologists who are more interested in solving problems than knowing the answer. This is Get Shit Done, a podcast that dives into how women entrepreneurs are gaining traction and growing companies that scale generational impact. Each episode is real talk from women founders who have successfully scaled companies. You'll learn what they did to grow, how they did it, and the tools they used to get it done so you can too. To get access to more episodes of Get Shit Done, along with free traction tools, head on over to shegetshitdone.com. Welcome back to the Get Shit Done podcast, queens and comrades. I'm your host, Alex Fatdorf, a.k.a. Chief Get Shit Done Officer. Ooh, I had to put a little twang on it this week. I'm feeling myself. Anywho, did you know that women own nearly half of businesses, but we only generate 4% of total business revenues? Womp womp. But it will get better. That's why our motto is fuck 4%. Our goal here every week is to teach you the traction strategies and tactics with the tools you need to get shit done and grow on your own terms so you can scale generational impact. Today, we'll be breaking down how Lisa DeSalt co-founder of Compass, and hold up, no, we're not talking about the real estate platform. This is the other Compass, the compensation platform providing companies total visibility into their people with zero spreadsheets. Today, Lisa, who is a technical founder, is going to break down how non-technical founders can avoid getting screwed over and spending money on tech. And this means avoiding the traps of hiring the wrong tech people, and developing the wrong products. Or better yet, those tech people you hired developing the wrong products that you didn't ask for, but you might have and you didn't realize you did. But we'll get into that. So here's what you're going to learn from Lisa. She breaks down how she and her co-founder went from being in big tech companies like StubHub to building out their own tech company. And unlike many founders who stumble upon the problem, they actually developed a process to know what problem they could solve for and that they'd be passionate about. Lisa then dives into the number one question most founders fail to ask. That may be the reason you fail, but thankfully you caught it in time, you're here. She also dissects how you can be the market leader as a non-expert and walks through how to not get too attached so you can keep growing, which is super important. And last but certainly not least, you'll learn how to build a badass tech company as a non-technical founder and how you can find the best tech talent to help you make it happen without getting screwed over. But before we dive on in, we need your support. To help our team show up and support you week after week, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Better yet, share it with a friend. This helps you know when episodes drop and tells the algorithms to find more queens and comrades just like you that we can support. And if you want to get weekly get shit done traction briefings that breaks down every single episode with key takeaways, free resources, templates, tools, head on over to shegetshitdone.com slash join and we'll slide up in your inbox week after week to help you get it done. But without further ado, Queen Lisa Dussault. Lisa, welcome to Get Shit Done. 
Hi. Oh, she's in sunny California. Maybe it's sunny. Maybe it's raining. I don't know. Medium. Medium. (laughs) Medium. Um, Awesome. So I'm excited because a lot of what you do um, and your expertise is on the technical side, which scares a lot of founders who are non-technical because the majority are non-technical, at least now. I think that's going to change in the next few years. Um, But before we dive into that, because I know so many founders have questions around the technical side, how to streamline, how to recruit, all of that. um, I want to know about you. So let's go back and take us back to what were you doing before you started Compass? I was wrapping up the gig I had after my last startup. Um, I had joined a startup that didn't make it big and we had a minimum viable exit. (laughs) Um, I love that minimum viable exit. I've never heard that, but I'm going to, I'm going to borrow that. Yeah, it was, it was good. We kept the team together a little longer. Um, We worked at StubHub and StubHub was not a great fit for me, but um, did my best there. Uh, Did some worked with a bunch of different people and shared information and, and worked in their labs team and then tailed that off and, and started working on my own ideas and found a new co-founder. Amazing. Why was StubHub not a good fit for you? Um, StubHub ha- was in a phase of trying to be super serious and grown up and part of eBay and they wanted to focus on their one North Star um metric and anything like the whole team working in StubHub Labs that wasn't working towards the North Star metric was uh, rather sidelined. I ask that because it's so, so important. I think even in your own company, um, a question in the beginning of my my last company um, that we would ask that I, I think we should have continued asking as we were scaling um, is as each of the individual founders, what do you want to be working on now? Um, because it's so easy to start moving into categories. You're like, I don't really care about this. And then you start getting exhausted. Um, so you're working at it. I think this applies to for people working somewhere else is saying, is this something I want to be working on? So you went from um, StubHub, you decided to start Compass. So tell us, why did you start Compass and what problem is it solving? So we started Compass, um, well, we started what we were calling Kathy Labs uh, because when I met my co-founder, Bethany, she's amazing, um, we both knew we wanted to do our own thing again. We both weren't happy in larger companies where we were sidelined or <laughs> just stopped from being effective. Um, and Bethany wanted to do something around aging at home. And I wanted to do something around, um, communities that take membership fees and have events and, and support those, um, both of which are, are fine ideas. But when we started working together, we became very disciplined around finding the right problem for the two of us to solve. So um, we did something called business model canvases where still in the space of like you could fit it all in an eight and a half by 11, you really look at nine different factors of a, of a startup idea. And if you can't fill them in, you have to learn more about it or, or else it's not a, it's not even a decently fleshed out idea. You can't compare it if you don't know not only what you would build, but what problem is it solving and who is it for and how would you get it to them? 
right? Delivery is important too. And, and what would you charge for it? And what would be the cost of building it? Um, just a few ideas on each of those is, is what you really need to compare the disadvantages of an idea against other ideas, as well as the advantages, the cool thing you thought of. And we had like 10 or 20 of these business model canvases. We um, threw in some ideas around what makes companies better because Bethany and I both love companies that work. <laughs> there's so much, there's so much better to be in that companies yes. that are dysfunctional, right? The ones that are just getting a lot of cash, but will forever be Ponzi schemes because the business models don't work. Yes. Oh. <laughs> or the ones where the culture's not working or the ones yep. where the managers don't have the right tools. There's too much layering or siloing, bad communication. There's so many ways companies can be bad, right? We figured that anything we could do to make companies be better companies would help a lot of people who work in those companies. Um, we started interviewing people on all of these topics. And we talked to a lawyer who said, oh, you know what's really hard in companies, but it's probably too hard to fix. We're like, tell us, tell us. <laughs> she said, Compensation, it's, it's a real mess. And so we were like, oh, tell us more. And of course, the challenge of telling me and Bethany something's too hard to fix, we're like, I, let me at it. <laughs> yes. I'm really, I love this framework and this model because as you know, you've done this for years now. Um, there's so much hype and glamorization around being a founder or starting a company. And I think people get so attached to ideas instead of solving true problems. And I love this business model canvas that you're talking about to really say not only what problem are we solving for, are we the right people? So can you walk us a little bit through what are some of those questions that you asked yourself to get to, to that place? And then um, I love this idea of even how you went to talk to other people saying, what's the hardest thing? So what did you initially ask yourselves? Um, yeah, I totally agree. Figuring out the right problem and are we the right people to solve it are, are just at, or, or even more important than having the, the brilliant idea. The brilliant idea is overvalued um, compared to all the other things you need for execution. So one example is that we were looking at that aging in home stuff and a bunch of sensor applications um, uh, to, to you know, alert people if something bad happened in the house um, where an elderly person can't, can't help themselves. And... This would have required doing stuff with hardware and um, raising a lot of money before even being able to release a product. And um, it, it didn't play to our strengths. So while we cared about it and while we thought it was a good idea and a good market and a, and a, and a, real, a problem we would have loved to solve, it didn't have the same qualities as a what what was the work that we'd be doing that that Bethany and I would be best at it didn't it doesn't allow for as fast software iteration for example and that was something i'd really honed in my previous startups was saying like well let's try this we'll do a minimum implementation of this people aren't using it okay great we dump that feature before we invest more in it right with sensors that you put in the home you have to have so much built out before you can even start um, learning from, from applications and from use. So that's one example. We weren't suited to that idea much as we would have liked to be. Another example, when we were talking to the, uh, 
different people inside HR and um, finance and the back office of companies to find out what kinds of problems they had in making their companies great. We knew that managers have trouble keeping track of employees when it's review time. Suddenly it's review time and you're like, oh, what, what, what has everybody doing, been doing all year? And there's a real recency bias and there's a real bias towards, you know, the one important project. You know, there might be six projects in the team, but the one that the manager's involved with that they give to their favorite person is the, 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 the importance bias. So we wanted to be able to even that out and make it fairer by giving managers information that we collected year round. And yep, cool idea, cool problem, real problem. And the and when we looked at one of the things we asked ourselves that I don't think enough founders asked ourselves is how could this go wrong? How could this be used badly? Um, we, we, we realized that to sell this as a product and to make money and to grow and to continue making it better, we'd have to sell it to HR departments. And but that's our channel, right? And that's what we filled out in the business model canvas. And by selling it to HR departments and leadership, we knew that it would, they would want to use it for surveillance. They would want to look at every note you'd made about somebody, even on the day you were pissed off and have that forever and you wouldn't be able to erase something that you regretted saying so like that 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 feels like it could be used by a company badly rolled out with the greatest of messaging and yet used against employees in some cases right so powerful because it reminds me of kate o'neill she um, is the author of this book called the tech humanist and she was one of the earlier employees at netflix and we did an interview with her on how companies scale unintended consequences because yeah. they're not asking that particular question is how can this go wrong? Even with get shit done, that's probably the question that keeps me up the most as we grow, because for us, it's about how do we capture the data on what's working across the board for women entrepreneurs, and being able to gain traction and grow and scale to a certain extent. But the thing that we have to be mindful of is how do we not continue to continue to perpetuate outcomes for the same people and groups yeah. that thrive? So we know that Asian women entrepreneurs perform best from a revenue perspective, right underneath them is white women. And so it's saying, well, Black women have the lowest on average revenue. We need to make sure that a lot of our efforts are making sure that we're we're equitably moving people through the pipeline. So I love that question. Yeah. That's so good. So you're using this business model canvas. You started asking these really powerful questions. And for those of you listening, you can Google business model canvas and you literally, it's a free template you can use. So then you get that feedback and you have this aha moment for compensation. What do you all do next? Well, for a while, compensation wasn't the idea at the top of our list. So we were we were building out all these business model canvases, filling in where we didn't know the answers by asking people or doing research. We did a bit of competitive research for every single one of the ideas that we thought was promising. We tried to bring them all to the same level of research. 
And then we put them all in one spreadsheet. <laughs> we both love spreadsheets. Uh, and we listed the positives and negatives, like um, what, I can't remember the factors we used in this spreadsheet. I, I should look it up again, but things like um, what was the, what was the potential for growth? Could, could we build it into a large enough business that would, we'd be, we, our ambition would be satisfied? What was the potential for investment? Did we think that this was an area that investors would understand and be able to invest in? And we ranked things as high, medium, low in a bunch of these um, columns based on what we learned in the, and filled out in the business model canvases. And yeah, the compensation strategy stuff was, was creeping to the top. It, it just didn't have some of the negatives that some of the other ideas had. One of the things we thought was an advantage for it is it was boring stuff. And we we're like, we could do boring stuff. Boring <laughs> is some of the most profitable, like boring can be sexy because of its profit margins and its ability to grow. Some of the yeah. most successful companies are not sexy. <laughs> I don't need what I'm doing to fascinate everybody around me. And I know if I'm doing it and it's got complication in it, then it will fascinate me. And compensation has people and tech and money, and that makes it super complicated. Yes. Okay. So you all have done this thorough analysis, which is simple. <laughs> Anybody, anyone can do this, use that canvas. And it's a great way because, you know, I always tell founders, go with your gut, but quantify it, you know, by looking at the hard facts, right? Yeah. Um, because it could be a great idea. Is it a good business? Mm -hmm. That's where you need to quantify and see, well, what's the market? Are we the best? I love that. Are we the best? Could it potentially go wrong? Wonderful questions. One of the things that stood out um, to me from what you said previously to us recording that um, we got back from your feedback was that you all, because of your experience with startups, you've gotten really good at helping people to get it. So this can be very discouraging for founders when you might be early to the market um, or you're the first and you get so many people saying, no, this doesn't make sense. Like the lawyer even said, I don't think this can be done. But you said that, wait, we are the behind the curtains people learning and helping people understand. Can you walk us through the approach to learning, building, and getting buy-in to spaces that other people don't under understand necessarily, but it is solving a major need? Right. I don't have, a ma I don't have anything magic. I don't have talent in this area. Mm. Um, when... Bethany and I have found success in this. She's better at the messaging and the cr the crafting of a of a a homepage, a landing page, for example, and what what that should be and what story it should tell um, than I am. Um, but to get uh, together, part of our approach is to really know this stuff. We had been interviewing very widely. We interviewed finance and law, pe legal people in, inside companies. And then when we just picked the compensation idea and, and committed to it, and we committed to it, we're like, this is it. This is what we're building. We're starting to write sample code or, um, and, and tell people what we're doing. And, and now we're committed. Then we started talking to heads of total rewards and heads of people ops and people who built HR software and um, 
consultants in doing HR software and consultants doing compensation benchmark analysis for companies. So we were like honing in on our target and continuing all of these, these customer discovery uh, sessions. It's really that that built the confidence, the messaging. We write down everything that customers say that um, explains the problem in a new light because some turn of phrase can really help other people unlock. We we can understand it, but then the turn of phrase um, can we can repeat it to other people and and share the knowledge of what an interesting important area this is. It can still be hard. We talk to lots of investors in our early pitches, our seed round, and our our, our most recent round that um, don't didn't get it. Mm. This is. This is really interesting um, around language that we've talked about before. And we just had content planning office hours with our founders. And, you know, I hear this often from entrepreneurs say, I'm not a marketer. I'm not a. And so when they approach things like messaging, pitching, it becomes very gimmicky. Mm-hmm. Whereas what I love about discovery processes and talking to what is your end user customer or potential end user customer is people will come to us and say, who does your marketing? And I'm like, our customers, they literally do our marketing. When we talk to them, because we're always doing, we have, I mean, hundreds of pages of feedback and we transcribe them. Not only do we use like the technology to do it, there's things like Fireflies AI, but we also, I'm very kinesthetic learner. So I'm also writing myself because it helps me to retain it. And then what this helps us do is when we're going to pitch, let's say uh, a company on becoming a comrade, if we're pitching a founder um, to become a part of our tribe, which it's not even a pitch anymore, it's a conversation. Mm -hmm. And we're leveraging the language that people have already told us to get that buy-in. And they're like, oh my God, we will get so many founders that come to us and say, you speak my language. And I'm like, that is by design (laughs) because it's when you have these really complex issues that you're dealing with, distilling it in a way people understand is, can be complicated. And the the best way around it, I think is just using the language to meet people where they're at. Yes. I really agree with you. And it's an example of how, even if we didn't come to marketing as with a ton of experience or feeling like we're naturally great at marketing, which I don't never have felt, we can bring the tools we do have. Um, mm. For me and Bethany, it's being methodical, being organized, writing everything down. We also have a spreadsheet, which we leaned on really heavy in early days of reasons and quotes and taglines, just uh, just collect them all, um, You figure out how to recombine them in a spreadsheet because that's our superpower. <laughs> so if you have this spreadsheet, if we can visually walk through what those columns, what were you tracking in there? And this is something Google yeah. Sheets, if someone's just getting started out and is trying to distill these big complex things down, and that's one of the best ways I think to do it because you can see everything in front of you. What does it look like if you went like column by or just like the, the top things to track? Well, I can tell you exactly what it has because I've got it in front of me. It's um, Oh, I love it. Yeah. Love it. It's um it's a Airtable called marketing copy. Love and it. And we have um general description, uh like a tagline or a 
this is going to get make me better at my job was a quote we had from a customer. This is going to make me better at my job. We're like, oh, write that down in the in the marketing copy air table. Um, and we tagged things like, would it be good on handouts? Would it be good on a website? Where did we get it from? What voice is it? Um, our uh, our designer Erica did a bunch of this organizing of it. Again, she she didn't uh, come from marketing, but she's like, I, I can I can do an Airtable. I can categorize this. She's by uh, training a librarian, so she was able to tag things, and it really helped us make make sense of a bunch of the things we'd heard and the things we were saying. Um, looked at them together. Some one of these tables has hearts on some of them, the ones we thought you were, love would hit right. Love that. So one of the things you'd mentioned um, prior to this was that being first and best in market, and that's something that you all are really gunning for. Um, what do you think it takes for founders to be not only first, but best in a market? Because what I usually see is you're either first and you might become a pets.com um, because of all of the competitiveness. Um, or you can be the best, or you're just kind of in between. But being first and best is very, very rare. So what do it you is. think it takes? Um, I'm going to sound like a broken record here, but it's listening to customers. <laughs> because um, it doesn't have to be something that comes out of your own amazing brain that, is, that becomes an idea that is first in a market. Um, it can, it, it, it's actually, if you're going to bring it to market, it should be an idea that comes from a problem that remains unsolved, a problem that has been created by other changes or a problem that has ar arisen from trends, right? Um, so it might be a new problem. It might be an old problem that can finally be addressed in a new way. Um, but really learning about that problem will help you be first with a solution to it. Uh, and and that's that's something you can't learn by looking at the other solutions. You can't learn that by doing the competitive research. Um, it's important to do the competitive research too, because you might learn why a problem is uninteresting to other people. But and that's it's important to look at the downsides too. Um, but by looking at those problems, you can you can often be first. I've I've done that a few times um, it, it, at different startups. But then being best requires you to keep on listening. I try to hold opinions lightly. Um, I forget the catch. There's a good catchphrase around arguing passionately, but passionately, but holding lightly. Like argue <laughs> things out, make a case for them, but be ready to let things go. And you have to keep doing that. You, if you're, if you get people who get applauded for a genius idea, maybe they started out listening to customers and identified a problem and they win the pitch competition or something great. Now they feel like attached to it. Like this, this is the idea that got me that applause that got me my first $10,000 check that got me uh noticed that got people saying I was smart and they believed in me. This is my, and they can't, let it go or even let it change after that right keep, yes. keep moving keep changing oh. always keep that open open door open window to let that change come in and 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 let that voice whispering like maybe we shouldn't be doing it this way anymore maybe mm -hmm. that feature isn't helping people 
Yep. One of the things I remind myself constantly of is um, Jeff Bezos said, be stubborn with the vision, but flexible on the details. Oh, yeah. And that customer listening, if there's there's three main themes from all the interviews we have done with women founders who are successfully scaling is the top is your ability to get focused, listening to your customers and measuring impact. And I think that ability to get focused comes from listening to your customers, measuring impact, so you know what to get focused mm-hmm. on. Focus is also its own thing. You can yeah. listen to too many people yes. and that won't help you get focused. Nope. So I, but I completely agree. Focus, super important. Yep. So one of the things that I really love about your background is you're a technical founder. And that's a sore subject with a lot of founders who are non-technical. And I don't think we're in this space now. Like everything is a tech company for the most part. It's tech enabled. Um, but for what you're building, it requires technical expertise. It's not something you can just get out of the box, get on Shopify, whatnot. So what would be your your advice to women founders that are building something that does require technical expertise? However, it's a very, like, where do they even get started? And I see this as a sore subject for founders that are like, I just don't know where to go. Right. A bunch of ideas. Um, one is how possible it is these ta- these days to build um, an approximate experience for customers out of things like Airtable, Google Forms, um, mailing lists, uh, and a bunch of what we call white glove, doing the work manually, but the customer feels like you're taking care of them personally. <laughs> Yes, I'm so happy you said that. Yes. Yeah. Man yes. behind the curtain, right? Um, woman behind the curtain. We are we've we use this so much, even though I'm a technical founder. There's so much I could have built and a lot of engineers would have built as code and tried to build a framework and tried to build a system and 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 build and build and build and build. And I was like, well, this is our first namely integration. Let's not build it. Let's just fake it. Yes, 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 yes. And it's it's always so interesting when I get founders that come to me and saying, we need to get funding for this idea because we need to invest in the technology of building it out. And I'm like, interesting. Walk me through that. So have you talked to anyone or have you gotten any demand from it, any traction from it? No, that's why we need to build out the tech so we can see what people think. And I'm like, absolutely not. Like, even... In any, any of my businesses, it is always that very manual. And I think there's so many buzz terms like scale and whatnot. I always think back to Paul Graham's um, article, Do Things That Don't Scale, in the beginning. Right. Um, so you know what to scale instead of spending money on things no one asked you to build. I was and at then a company that used queuing. Queues were really hot back in that you know, year queuing to scale a service to a million users and we never made it past 5,000. Exactly. Exactly. Like, and same thing, like we won't build out anything. There's something that we're uh, going to be building into more of a technical product, but it was literally us building it in Google sheets first and then 
iterating based on how we saw people using it um, before. Because I actually learned that in my last company, we could have done out the box before we went straight into very technical, customized build. Right. I I could have built a framework. I could have built a whole system. I could have automated a bunch of things, but instead, white glove, manual. Manual, manual. I love it. I I I spent time moving numbers around in spreadsheets by hand instead of writing code to do it because I didn't know if I would ever do it again or if I wrote Mm. the code, if I would even write the right code. Yeah, exactly. I love this. So, and, and I think that's a great point when it comes to even technical talent. I always tell founders this is that when you're bringing on technical people, technical people tend to want to build the the Lamborghini because they want to see how can I build the coolest thing ever with my skills, right? Yeah. And the market is like, I need a Toyota, right? And so that's something I actually learned with my in my former company was my one of my co-founders wanted to build the Lamborghini. We we're like, our customers only need this. And he's like, damn it. But it was valid. So once the founder has done that manual process, that white glove and figured out, ooh, this thing's sticky. Yeah. We need yeah. to build this now into something. How should they be approaching the process of finding the right people to come on board that are technical? You just said it. <laughs> Find the technologists who are more interested in solving problems than knowing the answer. Ooh, that's good. That's good. Because it doesn't stop. Once you've set, once you've got um, some people willing to pay, it doesn't stop. You don't stop learning about the problem and, and, and things don't stop changing. So you have to bring in um, an, your early technologists have to be people who are willing to solve problems, not coding. They can't be too attached to their identity as engineers or their their ability with, um, with, with blockchain applications to, uh, to, to consider simpler, earlier ways of doing things or even just not doing things. Oh, I love that. So another thing we hear from founders around who are tech, non-technical, quote unquote, um, finding very, very technical people is, there's two different things. It's either this feeling of getting screwed over because they either did really get screwed over and had someone take their money, taking advantage of the gap of like understanding around the technical process. Mm -hmm. Or I think the other side is there's a miscommunication because perhaps the founder um, didn't come with the blueprint for the technical person and know like, this is what I need to execute on because Honestly, I, I don't think you should be going to technical people saying, here's the vision of it. Come with blueprints that they can say, oh, like this is what I'm going to actually construct. So what would you say are the biggest mistakes you see founders making when it comes to bringing on technical talent early? Um, well, you're right about not coming with just a vision. I don't think you can come with a blueprint either. Because it's it's a real partnership and iteration trying to figure out, well, what could we do and what effect would that have? But what if we changed this? And what if we brought in some of that idea, which we laid to the side earlier? It's really being creative and persisting in thinking about the problem and the, and the options before committing to a technical fix. Don't work with a technical leader who has like a two-year plan. 
um, mm. because they need to realize that this is going to be a constant tweaking and adjusting um, uh, and and dropping bits and, and saying, oh, I think if we did this, it would help us solve this other problem. Re- really, that cre- creativity. I see founders almost treat it like I have to commit to this technical VP engineering I've hired. I'm completely reliant on them. And that's it. End of story. I can't. And I've seen female founders take, you know, male VPNs uh, oftentimes and just put things in your in their hands. Like, help me build this. Yeah. And it can go horribly wrong that that VPN with the best intentions, but not having the experience as a founder or or the same attachment to the problem as the as the founder does have. Um, can say, oh, I know what to build and go off and build it for a year and do a good job building that thing, which is totally not what your customers need or is overbuilt for what your customers need or takes too long to get to market and and things change or you can't get enough runway to support them. You have to remain engaged and challenging. We One of the things that makes the technology sometimes appears... Um, too challenging to like it appears to shut people out is this idea that there's somehow a, a wall an invisible barrier and beyond that point uh you know a non-technologist feels like oh i'm not not going to understand it so i just can't go there i just need to trust or ask questions and then stay on my side but on this side of that invisible wall we're all confused <laughs> and <laughs> learning all the time so Step on through, engage. Don't feel like, oh, I'm bouncing off this idea. I'll never get it. Bounce off that idea today. Bounce that off off the same idea tomorrow. Bounce off that idea three more times. And then you might get, wait, no, I think I understand it. Yeah, I think I understand what you're doing with this framework, right? You come, this is what we do inside technology all the time. We approach an idea day after day after day, and we build modules in our head that help us understand more complex things, whether it's like a mathematical algorithm or how a bunch of software components are fitting t- fitting together. We come back to it day after day after day to build our understanding and non-technical people can do that too. Oh, I love this, not putting your eggs in one basket. And especially for founders, there's that sense of relief when they find the technologists. We actually have this, um, one of our founders going through this right now where they actually hired someone who is very capable, but at stage three of the company. Right. It's they are not the best person to build the plane early while you're flying it, like from ground, like one, two. Um, so what would you say? I love, love these tips of these tips of challenging and continuing to ask questions, but what are some things that founders can be doing? to make sure they're understanding whether this is working or not and when to move on. Yes, have at least two tech advisors as well as your tech lead. Go to I them love that. often. Go to them every other week for at least an hour. Show them the code. Mm. Show them the product. Show them the, the roadmap. Show them the sprint tasks. Yes. Get, and getting that validation, yeah. Yeah. 
at, yeah. at best case, your VPN is doing great and you'll get ideas from your tech advisors or confirmation that this process is working and you can rely on it. Um, your tech advisors can be amazing people that you would never be able to get to join your team. They're too expensive. Right. Or, or they're building their own thing, right? Yeah. So get the best ones you can get. Get people who have who have gone through exactly this stage and ideally a similar kind of technology. That, but because you're not asking them to join your company just to advise you constantly, it should be a lot easier to find them. I love that. We actually did that in my former company prior to bringing on um, the co-founder who was our CTO. Um, one of our friends who was a CTO of their own startup yeah. Um when we were going through the, when they were, they were going through the interview process, um, they would give them a code test. There's a lot of tools for this now, um, a code test, and then that person would look at it and be like, "Nope, this coder shit. This is shit. Oh, this one's really good." Um, there's tools for that now, but I think having the advisors, those people that can actually like talk through and see, okay, what are the actual business objectives? What's going on here? I think is super super powerful. So. In your journey, what would you say has been one of the biggest mistakes you've made as a founder that has become one of the best lessons to shape you into the leader you are today? Definitely um, my first startup, just building too much too early, building what we thought the solution would be. And I felt like... um, this was, I knew I, I could be a founder, a CTO, and um, I, but I had never done it before. So I was focused too much on how I had to prove to myself to my co-founder. And the truth was, in the end, she needed to prove herself to me. Amen. <laughs> I felt the software, it worked, and people didn't buy it. I just think of how often women entrepreneurs, just as because of how we're socialized as women, feeling that need to prove mm-hmm. when there's so many more people around us that need to prove it. Um, so no, that that's, that's an amazing lesson. So, you know, one of our mottos that gets shit done is fuck 4%. Um, we say that because women make up, I mean, we're half of business owners, but our companies bring in 4% of total business revenues. That's something that we are intent on changing through conversations like this, through the way we show up, our programs, our communities, so on and so forth. So what are you focusing on today to grow your business revenues to the next level? Um, we are, we are, in, we are increasing our sales. It's um, great to be coming out of the pandemic and talking to customers, talking to prospects, um, and, and seeing that hit, uh, Bethany is doing most of this right now. Um, our our emphasis right now is we know we've got it. We, we're, we're locked in on, on something that enough people want. Um, the functionality is almost, is, is almost there. You know, there's a, there's, there's whole for enough people. Um, so, so we're getting it out there. Um, it's it's sort of secondary what my main focus is right now since Bethany's out there taking the calls and doing the demos and signing on the customers I'm like I need to be ready because this is working and we're going to get these people I need to be ready to onboard companies I need to be ready to help them run their reward cycles I need to be able to 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 use their data whatever it is um my tools need to be b- better finally I'm at the point where I need to actually improve my automation 
<laughs> I can't be doing as much stuff manually. It's great to be able to hit that as as our problem, right? And make my um, data engineer more efficient uh, so that we can handle this growth as it's as it's happening and, and more coming. I love this because it goes back to, you know, how focus can be a completely different thing. And when you're a technologist that has all these capabilities, you could build the Lamborghini, right? How are you holding yourself and your team accountable? And it's probably by communicating with sales to continue building out and iterating on what your customer actually needs. A lot of it is still coming through customer success because um, when once we get people on to sign on with us, um, we still have lots of opportunities through being partners with our customers. Um, having a lot of one-on-one -on -one time with them to, to learn more about what they're doing and what they wish they could do and what took a long time or what was frustrating or, or what their CFO wants. So many things we can learn. We're, we're always trying to ask them these questions because we, we still don't know enough about their lives. We still don't know enough. What would be the thing that would make them seem like superheroes to their chief of finance? Um, and that's a question we can't even ask them, right? You've might, might you've probably heard the critique of um, of of listening to customers and doing customer discovery that oh well the customer won't tell you they want a car when they, when they all they know is horses and they want a faster horse that poops less. <laughs> um, it's true, but I mean it's just not the point because. You still need to learn what their problems are, what their challenges are, what makes them feel good at the end of the day. And that just requires constantly understanding their lives and what made them sad on a given day or what mm. made them feel great. Mm. You know, there's one thing of, I, I truly don't believe the customer is always right. Sometimes the customer thinks they want one thing and it's actually something else. Um, however, I do believe that you need to meet them where they're at. And so it's so easy to try to force, you know, something down the consumer's face, but you have to kind of lead them to the promised land and iterate based on how, how they're telling you. And it's going to that, that what's that problem they feel like you need to solve now. And then introducing them to that other way. Yeah. Um, I think that can only happen with trust. So now that you and your team are, you know, amping up sales right now, you're making sure that you're focusing your time and energy and your teams, where can we support you based on what you're, you're focused on today? Oh, thank you. That's an awesome question. I don't really have an answer. I hope in a few months we'll be hiring and we'll be looking for more amazing people to join our team. Um, but yeah, until then, we're, we're talking to investors um, about our current round. Um, Bethany's got that well in hand. I, I don't, yeah, I think we're doing okay. It's a bunch of, of, of nose to the grindstone. Thank you so much for listening to Get Shit Done. We hope you got the traction tips you need to grow your company on your own terms. If you want to learn more traction tips like these from Badass Women Entrepreneurs Weekly, make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, queen, show us some love by rating and reviewing this podcast. This really helps us reach and serve more women like you in slaying their way to traction. 
And if you're looking for more support on your scaling journey, head on over to shegetsshitdone.com slash join, where you'll become a part of the movement of women entrepreneurs giving 4% the middle finger. Until next time, queen, I'm Alex Batdorf reminding you, you got this. Now go out there and get shit done.